The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. President Donald Trump ordered a U.S. airstrike that killed one of Iran's most powerful generals. In a brief address from his Mar-a-Lago resort, Trump said General Qasem Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks against American diplomats and military personnel. We do not seek regime change. However, the Iranian regime's aggression in the region, including the use of proxy fighters to destabilize its neighbors, must end, and it must end now. Joining me is John Gans, former chief speechwriter at the Pentagon and author of White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. John, Soleimani has been a leader in Iran for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, so he was, he's been a leader in Iran and directing really Iran's regional activities for decades, really. Um, and activities that have included sort of, uh, its long running battles against Israel, its long running sort of work to support proxies and, and like Hezbollah and other forces in, in re, in countries around the region. And then it's like sort of long running push to try and get the United States out of the region. And Soleimani has really been, this sort of uh, sort of grand strategist of this effort, um, but even more than just sort of the big thinker, he was sort of out there uh, around the region as as the past 24 hours have demonstrated. He was like on the ground. He wasn't just somebody who sat in the war room. He was somebody who was out there sort of directing forces. And so he's somebody that um, I think most Americans who do know who he is, and that's not many, really became most familiar with him because he was directing actions against American troops, including the sort of placement of improvised explosive devices in Iraq at the sort of peak of violence in the Iraq war in in like 2006, 2007, 2005. And so that's when most American policymakers became sort of most familiar with him and, and sort of most became committed to sort of seeing him taken down. So that's been, as you say, going on for quite some time through several administrations. Do we know what happened that led to this strike at this particular time? The chairman of the Joint Chiefs said there was compelling evidence. Yes. So it does appear, based on what we're sort of hearing from the Trump administration, two things. One, I think we've seen uh, through the Trump 
almost the entire Trump administration, this sort of cycle of tit for tat with Iran, where we sort of see an action and then a counter reaction and things along those lines. Um, and in most instances, this is sort of sort of resulted in sort of um, sort of a de-escalation. In this particular case, uh, last week we saw an attack um, on American uh, forces in northern Iraq and Kirkuk that resulted in the death of one American contractor and the injuries to several other Americans. The the um, the Trump administration responded uh, with uh, some strikes against American proxy for excuse me Iranian proxy forces in Iraq, which then led to uh, a protest and that was sort of stoked by Iranian uh, forces in in Iraq against the American embassy in Baghdad. And then you sort of saw this big sort of escalation with the attack on Soleimani. What we're hearing is that there is some evidence um, that the Trump administration has not shared, but is sort of relying on that suggested that there were imminent attacks. Um, There's some suggestion this was a preemptive move to try and stop one of those attacks. I think we will have to see what that evidence is, um, if, if it's ever forthcoming. Um, but it's no surprise that he was probably planning some actions against Americans. It's a question of whether those actions were sort of required this quick a move and required this scale of a response. Um, and now uh, those actions, I mean, historical evidence and academic research suggests that just because you take out the sort of leader of a force that's involved in these kinds of actions doesn't mean they're going to stop uh, and, in fact, could lead to some escalation. So it's not necessarily a sure thing that this stopped those actions, um, though it seems to have been the pretext for this particular attack. He's already been replaced by his number two, apparently. Now, Iran's supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei, quickly threatened severe retaliation. The foreign minister said that the Islamic Republic's response to the U.S. killing the country's top military commander will come at any time and by any means. Is there is there any speculation about what form Iran's retaliation will take and, and when? Well, you just have to log on to Twitter to see. There's a lot of speculation <laughs> about what that will be. Uh, so, I, well, Twitter I is predicting World War III, as far as exactly. I can tell. I mean, we've got the we've got the whole spectrum. I mean, I I think there is um, plenty of studying and plenty of research and plenty of uh, to suggest that Iran will respond. It doesn't necessarily have to respond in kind by sort of taking out a senior uh, American military official or other kind of official, though that's one option. There are America's interests are spread all over the region and they're spread all over um, the world. uh, And Iran can respond um, in kind or they can respond in a different way. Uh, And they can either sort of continue to escalate things or they can try to find some sort of happy medium that that tries to sort of save face without necessarily taking this to the next level. Iran's got a lot of power, uh, a lot of options at its disposal, and a lot of American targets to pick from. Uh, And some of those are civilian, and some of those are domestic, right? They have cyber capabilities that can reach the United States and have. And so I think there's a lot of speculation. I don't think anybody sort of knows. I think the predictions are safe to assume that something will happen uh, in the the near term. But uh, as I sort of pointed out earlier today, uh, you know, I don't think anybody would have predicted a week ago uh, where we are today. So it's hard to necessarily say where we're going to go from here. Let me ask you this I've been curious about, because uh, Chuck Schumer said that none of the Gang of Eight had been notified about this. And I don't know that there's an indication that any senator was notified, except for some, say, Lindsey Graham, who golfed with President Trump over the the holidays. Mm -hmm. Is this the kind of strike that normally you would notify the Gang of Eight? 
Well, it's uh, a good question. I think that there are some policies and sort of uh, practices that are in place in terms of covert actions and things along those lines. Where I think we're, and I am not a legal expert on the law of war um, and sort of those sorts of things, but I will say that where this one gets murky is there are a lot of authorities that are in place because of the fact that this occurred in Iraq and because we have ongoing hostilities against the Islamic State there um, and because he was designated terrorist. So there are certain authorities that are allowed and require different things. The only thing I'd say is, is that generally speaking, um, most administrations would find it in their in their um, interest to at least uh, keep Congress on their side uh, during these sorts of incidences and during these sorts of covert actions, because Congress can uh, has oversight over the um, agencies, including the Defense Department. The other thing I'd say is, is that what's interesting about this attack and what's interesting about this escalation is occurring at a time where President Trump is facing a trial on impeachment in the Senate and facing a re-election campaign. And one of America's sources of strength is the ability to sort of marshal America's sort of uh, public opinion and marshal congressional support. Donald Trump has not shown uh, much interest in doing either of those things. And so it comes at a sort of precipitous time and an, and an awkward time for him in terms of his relationship with Congress. So it will be interesting to see how Congress's calls to investigate and perhaps authorize this sort of actions will complicate whatever response uh, and counter response the Trump administration considers in the days and weeks ahead. Now, Senator Tim Kaine said he plans to file a war powers resolution to force debate and vote in, this ending, in the Senate to end further military operations against Iran. Um, I also understand, in light of that, that the U.S. is bolstering its military presence in the Middle East now. Yeah. I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Trump administration is that he is vocally always talking about how he wants to sort of get out of the Middle East and pull American troops out of the Middle East, but he keeps sending them to the Middle East. So um, I think since the since April or May, he sent 15,000 troops to the Middle East, and now he's sending more as of today. And so what you're actually finding is, is that this is actually increasing America's commitment to the Middle East, and to a degree, increasing the number of targets um, uh, for Iran. And and so um, and it will sort of complicate what President Trump's sort of uh, doctrine of sort of Amer withdrawing American troops from the Middle East and sort of his campaign promises that he made in 2016 on the campaign. And presumably he was hoping to run on in 2020. And so it's a very uh, touch and go time. I think that the Pentagon is uh, sort of reacting to events as quickly as they can and reacting to the decisions the president's making as quickly as they can. Um, and it's certainly probably not the end of deployments and not the end of sort of the need to sort of protect America's uh, both forces and presence in the Middle East. Well, thank you so much uh, for all that information. You certainly know a lot about this area. Thanks so much, John. That's John Gans. He is the author of White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. Coming up, we're going to talk more about what's happening in the U.S. Congress as far as this military strike. Of course, we saw that uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer were at odds over this. I'm June Grasso. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
I'm June Grosso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer had different reactions, of course, to the drone strike in Iran that killed one of Iran's most powerful generals. McConnell applauded it as it was, he said, the end of a terrorist leadership. Here's, um, Here's Senator Chuck Schumer. No one should shed a tear over his death. The operation against Soleimani in Iraq was conducted, however, without specific authorization and any advance notification or consultation with Congress. And that was just on the floor of the Senate today. And I'm joined by Max Burns, Democratic strategist in the New York studio. Uh, Max, what's your reaction to all this? I think this shows more than anything the importance of credibility in foreign policy. Much more than domestic policy, there's really nothing stopping the president from engaging in any kind of foreign policy adventurism that he wants. Uh, What binds the president and gives strength to American actions abroad is the ability to trust what the White House and the Pentagon says. Now, they've given three or four different justifications for this, none of which quite add up completely, uh, and now are essentially saying, just trust us, there was a plot we were interrupting, while providing no evidence that that's true. And what you'll see now with Tim Kaine introducing this privileged resolution in the Senate uh, to essentially bind the president's hands on escalating this war is uh, a discussion over just how credible the White House's claims of a threat really are. Joining us now on the phone is Lester Munson, principal at the government relations firm BGR Group and adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University. So, Lester, does the Trump administration have a credibility problem here? Well, I don't think they do. Uh, Leading members of of the Republican Party, at least, have said, and, and I include in that Senator Risch, who's the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and who also sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, have said they've had conversations with the president, they've been briefed, uh, at least in part already, and they feel that the president is on good grounds to take the action that he did. It's my understanding that there'll be a briefing of staff uh, as early as today, uh, and that the administration, as required under the law, will notify uh, the relevant members of of Congress uh, forthwith about their action, which is um, because this was a basically an intelligence operation. Uh, They have to notify certain members, including the leadership, very quickly, and they're going to do that. So I think we should wait and see what those briefings contain, uh, listen to the members who go brief them before we jump to too many conclusions. Uh, Lester, Senator Chris Murphy this afternoon was calling this an assassination, and he said that this man has been around this general for two decades, Soleimani, and that the neither the Bush nor the Obama administration went after him because they were afraid that it would, in effect, create a martyr and would lead to war with Iran. What's your take on that? Well, you know, in, in, largely he's not wrong. Uh, this, is, this is a risky move. Soleimani is a leading figure in Iran, or was a leading figure in Iran. 
uh, and there could be real consequences for what has happened. On the other hand, uh, Iran was pushing the envelope with the United States in Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, an American had been killed directly uh, just a few days ago. So there's no question that the, that the Trump administration, which by and large had not acted directly in response to Iranian provocations, had to do something. This was a big response. The president is saying... Uh, there will be further big responses if Iran threatens U.S. interests or takes more lives. On the other hand, he said he's not looking for regime change. He's trying to show that there will be a forcible U.S. response, but he doesn't want war with Iran. I believe that uh, former Ambassador John Bolton said time for uh, uh, regime change on his Twitter account today. Max, might we find out information, might it be revealed to us in, in the coming days or weeks that will justify this strike, that there are circumstances beyond what President Barack Obama or George W. Bush saw? It's certainly possible. I mean, there's still a lot that we don't know, and that's one of the challenges with these covert foreign policy operations, is you really only have one channel of information, and that's the people who want desperately for this to be legitimized. The challenge here is that uh, General Soleimani, far from being Osama bin Laden, despite his awful reputation, and to be clear, he is a terrible person, was, uh, is still the uniform general of a recognized nation state. Uh, so when they say the authorization for the use of military force in 2001 justified it, when they say 10 U.S.C. 127 justified it, None of that covers the fact that what we have essentially done is assassinate the general and perhaps the second or third most prominent individual in Iran uh, very directly in a way that the United States has not done in decades. Lester, the way this came about has led the Iranians, certainly the, the foreign minister, to say that this is international terrorism. Has the Trump administration opened itself up to that kind of critique? Well, I think that's uh, it's actually the opposite case. Iran is the one that's guilty of terrorism. Soleimani was in a foreign country. He was supporting terrorist organizations in that country that were acting against uh, Iraqi forces and American forces. So it's it's kind of the usual propaganda from Tehran, I'm afraid. Uh, so I don't I don't think that's a legitimate criticism at all. One thing I found a, a little bit odd. Perhaps the, the statement wasn't written by him, but um, President Trump, we know, has repeatedly criticized the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, tonight in his statement, he said that we have the best intelligence in the world. Do you think he has a problem relying on intelligence when he doesn't, when he, when he likes what they have to say and not relying on them when he doesn't like what they have to say, Lester? Well, it certainly, it certainly is an issue, isn't it? And uh, he, he is uh, on, at certain times very praiseworthy of the intelligence community and other times sharply critical. I think the times where he's sharply critical is when he feels that the intelligence community has uh, either targeted him or his campaign or uh, come to some conclusion that doesn't comport with his worldview. And, yes, that, that dichotomy does not necessarily help him at all. Now, um Max, what what do you see Democrats doing now? Just sort of standing around and complaining or, you know, harping on it? Or do you think they'll really take some action as um, the former vice presidential candidate Tim Kaine said he was going to do today? Well, this has really sort of divided the Democratic primary. You have people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren 
who came out very strongly and said this is an assassination. We need to prevent being steamrolled into a, another war in the Middle East. And then individuals like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, who made much more middle of the road, much more tempered statements that emphasized uh, how evil General Soleimani was, but asked for more oversight. So there's that challenge. And now there's also with Senator Kane, this debate we'll have now over a resolution that will essentially limit the president to 30 days of combat against Iran without further authorization. And there's a lot of fear in the party now that we don't want to make the same mistakes we did with Iraq. And that's Bernie Sanders' big point today was, I was right about Vietnam. I was right about Iraq. I'm right now, and we have to stop this. And and Lester, is is it in President Trump's best interests and his desires not to have this go any further because of his stance on not getting involved in stupid wars? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly it. And this is this is a dilemma for the president. He has said, uh, you know, contrary to John Bolton, I guess, who is who no longer works for Trump, I would point out that yes. he's really not interested in regime change. He does not want another Iraq war. He specifically campaigned against things like that in the 2016 uh, election. And so he's he's got a he's got a thread a, a tough needle here of having a tough response to Iranian aggression, but also not getting the U.S. dragged into any kind of conflict that gets it more bogged down in the Middle East. It's a it's a it is a tough dilemma. Uh, on the other hand, I, I do have to say I think if he had not responded to the killing of an American just a week ago. Uh, that he would he would have a worse dilemma. At least now the president has acted. He's shown that he's willing to respond to uh, direct Iranian action, and that should, uh, in the long run, lead to better behavior from Iran. Um, what what do you think, Max? Because uh, Iran, it's of course Iran. Every president has that I can think of in the past modern age has had trouble uh, dealing with Iran, and sometimes you need to take a, a strong step. I, do we think that what happens next is dependent in a large part, in large part, on what Iran does next? Yeah, and they have a few options on the table, ranging from sort of tit-for-tat strikes in Iraq to closing the Strait of Hormuz and jacking the price of oil through the ceiling which would cause a ton of global instability, especially in the United States. Uh, but the bigger challenge here is understanding what or if the White House even had a game plan for after this strike took place. Because this is not an individual whose death has gone unnoticed. It's, it's a great provocation. And my hope is that at least someone in the Pentagon had gamed out the likely outcomes here. But it doesn't seem from the public response, at least, that much of anything has been figured out in the White House. Well, we are going to be learning that, I hope, oh, and uh, most Americans hope, over the next few days or months as we learn more and more about what happened here. Certainly, we learned more just from President Trump's statement this evening uh, before he left for Washington. Coming up on Sound On, we're going to be talking about the impact of this on perhaps impeachment. Remember impeachment? It seemed like it was in the background today with the, the talk of the Iran strike, but it is still being talked about by those that matter in Washington. I'm June Grasso. This is Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin. Well, two weeks off for the holidays, no movement on the Senate impeachment trial. Today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer traded insults on the Senate floor. We've heard claims that it's a problem that I've discussed trial mechanics with the White House. Even as my counterpart, the Democratic leader, is openly coordinating political strategy with a speaker who some might call the prosecution. Leader McConnell reminds us today and in previous days that rather than acting like a judge and a juror, he intends to act as the executioner of a fair trial. I've been talking with Lester Munson and Max Burns. Max, does this strike in any way affect the non-moving impeachment trial? The moment. It's it's actually tough to say. Uh, this certainly gives more to the Senate to discuss. I mean, in 10 days now, uh, Tim Kaine's resolution will come up for debate, and that will probably be uh, what's on most people's minds, uh, figuring out the details of this strike. And there's no sign yet that Speaker Pelosi is going to move the articles of impeachment to the Senate. So there's no telling if those will overlap or how that might distract from anything. Lester, what there does anyone believe that Mitch McConnell is going to call witnesses or be forced by any of the Republican senators who seem to be talking about being you know receptive to witnesses to call witnesses at this trial? Uh, Mitch McConnell rarely says anything that he can't back up with action. So I, I strongly suspect that this is going to roll uh, in the Senate the way McConnell prefers. And that um, whether the speaker delays any further the the deliverance of the, of the articles of impeachment or not, aside from that, it, this is this is going to be a fairly streamlined process that uh, McConnell's been talking about. He doesn't want to turn it into a circus, either for the prosecution in the House or, frankly, for the White House to try and call uh, you know Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or something like that. So. I think I think when push ultimately comes to shove, and that may take a, a couple weeks or four or six weeks, uh, this will play out largely the way Senator McConnell has outlined. So push comes to shove. What could it be, especially now that we have this military strike in the headlines and on most people's mind, what could it be that would push Nancy Pelosi to send those articles over? Well, I think Pelosi, Pelosi in a way, is has a limit on how far she can go with this, right? She doesn't want to drag out the impeachment question 
well into the year. The the Democrats have a primary, or excuse me, a, a caucus in Iowa in less than a month now. They would like the focus to be on their candidates, eventually their one candidate to oppose Trump. And they so they want to, they also, the Democrats also have an interest in moving on from this impeachment process. Nancy Pelosi knew this was not a great idea months ago. She was kind of forced into doing it by her base. Uh, now she's had to embrace it, at least in public. But I think at a certain point, she's going to want to get this over with so the Democrats can move on with finding their nominee and someone who can articulate uh, a program that will be an alternative to President Trump's program. It's, it's, it really is critical for them that they get to that fairly quickly. Max, it seems the longer it takes to get to the Senate impeachment trial, the less power is behind the idea of impeachment. And, you know, even though you have all these, these these emails coming out and revelations in different New York Times investigations, it doesn't seem to be giving any impetus to the idea of impeachment. Yeah, and if you talk to someone in Iowa or a Democratic voter in New Hampshire uh, and ask them what's going on with impeachment, they have long since forgotten this. I mean, things have come up since that have just taken everyone's attention. And we see that there's still momentum in a way behind this because just yesterday uh, we saw the release of a bunch of emails from the Pentagon to the Office of Management and Budget that were not hearsay, were not uh, people referring, uh, referencing what they heard. It's things that said clear direction from the president to continue holding on Ukraine. Uh, these are things that are explosive by any standard, and this gives... Speaker Pelosi, I think, an out to say we want to stop and investigate these as well and at least have a look at what all this amounts to before we move it forward. But, Lester, does it seem to be gathering any momentum for the public as, as opposed to for, you know, the Democrats and the, the, the Democrats in the House and the Senate saying we want to have more information, we want to have witnesses? Does it seem to be moving anyone in the public or are the polls seem to be just about the same? news about the quid pro quo with Ukraine and it does and it really does seem like there was a there was a quid pro quo and an, an inappropriate one uh, showed that uh, support for impeachment and removal went up to about 50 percent of the American populace it's really stayed about the same since then uh, maybe fluctuated a point or two uh, so so President Trump knows it's really not you know unless that get that number gets up to 65 or 70 it's not really a threat to him he's not going to be removed by the Senate this thing hasn't really changed uh, yes the facts the more they come out tend to affirm that uh, the administration made some frankly you know what I would call uh, bad decisions about uh, relationship with Ukraine uh, but it's it's the American people don't see this impeachment process going anywhere. I think that I, I per, you know, I'm a Republican, but I personally think the better approach for the Democrats would be to say uh, we're going to we're going to get this impeachment wrapped up and we want you to to vote in November uh, for the better candidate. They, they can make a case. You can remove this guy if you think he's a, a bad president in November. Let's let's go with that. The American people will, will I think will be more supportive of that than the impeachment process. Let me ask you this, though, though impeachment seems to be sort of not on the minds of most Americans. Is it on President Trump's mind, at least from the tweets over the holidays? Uh, yes. It, well, <laughs> yes, I would say from Twitter, yes, it is on his mind. And uh, he does seem to be responding in real time to a lot of the stuff as it comes out. He's clearly focused on it. Uh, and he's not going to let 
any charge against him go unanswered, whatever the merits of his response, uh, he's you can count on him to to uh, keep the conflict going, I suppose. Max, do the Democrats lose anything by doing just what Lester said? Let's wrap this up. Let's get on to the election and then we'll show you <laughs> how you should vote. I don't think they do. I think that once you move this to the Senate, uh, people will remember again that this was happening uh, because this was a political lifetime ago for most Americans. It, it was a lifetime ago for me. Yeah, for all of us. <laughs> and I cover it every day. And most people, I think, the majority would have forgotten completely had President Trump not kept this drumbeat going. Uh, but what you see on the campaign trail is exactly that. Elizabeth Warren's not talking about impeachment. She's talking about USMCA and Iran. Bernie Sanders is talking about health care and Iran. Joe Biden is talking, I think, the most of anyone about impeachment. But then again, he, he is being directly implicated in this in a really unfair way. So that's not surprising. But it's not it's not a thing that I think candidates have seen gets voters motivated. So you barely hear about it. So, Lester, is there anything you can think of that would make Americans care more about impeachment? Well, uh, I, you know, I suppose you mean to the extent they would be more likely to support. Yes, the be more the excited about seeing a trial. Uh, gosh, I, it, it really. Uh, it, it stumped it me too. It, it was an unfair question, Lester, because it stumped I, me too. I don't know, Max. I, can you? <laughs> I think you know. There's, again, I kind of go back to my earlier point. There's a dilemma for the Democrats here. They had Nancy Pelosi didn't really want to go through this impeachment process. She knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. Uh, she didn't see it as a winner for her side. And so they kind of had a rushed process last year, late last year, when the House voted uh, out the impeachment articles. If they, had gone, if they had gone slower and they had subpoenaed John Bolton and uh, some of these other folks who were directly involved and gotten a little more electrifying testimony, I suppose, about exactly what the president decided when he decided it and whether people left the administration because of it or not, and, and that was more revelatory. If, if that had happened, and maybe that couldn't have happened because people would have moved to quash the subpoenas or whatever, but if that had happened, I think it's possible if you had gotten some of the president's own people to testify against him, and, and by his own people I mean like actual political appointees that he named, not career folks, uh, then I think you could have seen um, a plausible shot at um, more support for removal. But that's, that didn't happen. It's not going to happen. Uh, and frankly, I think, you know, for everyone's sake, we should just uh, have have the vote on the thing and move on. Nancy Pelosi is looking smarter and smarter in hindsight from her original declaration that uh, there shouldn't be an impeachment trial. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to be talking about the effect on the 2020. Remember the 2020 candidates? They've also been in the background right now. But does the military strike in Iran give one candidate, Joe Biden, an edge because the focus is more on foreign policy. I'm June Grosson. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin, and I've been joined tonight by Max Burns, Democratic strategist and contributor to the Daily Beast and the Independent, and Lester Munson, 
principal at the government relations firm BGR Group and adjunct faculty member Johns Hopkins University. Lester, I'll start with you. So the drone strike today, will that perhaps play to the strength of Joe Biden in the Democratic primary race by putting a new focus on foreign policy, which he's more expert in than any of the other candidates, I would say. Well, I I have a lot of respect for Joe Biden. I I worked on the Foreign Relations Committee uh, when he was chairman of it, granted for the other side. But he's he's a good man. He's put in a lot of work on these issues. I think that the problem for him is his views are not necessarily those of the base of the Democratic Party. He voted for the Iraq War. He's been generally more forward-leaning than most Democrats on foreign policy issues. Same, and, and by the way, the same critique kind of applies to, to Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's, I think, becoming a little more of a moderate on foreign policy issues. I think there's a real danger for both Biden and Buttigieg here that they could lose, they could go a little too far and lose kind of the base of that primary electorate in their party. Max, what's your take on whether there's an edge, no matter what Joe Biden, his past is, he can always say, hey, I've been there. I've been to Iraq. I was, you know, all all the different things that he did during his vice presidency and his years in the Senate. Yeah, and that reflects with Democratic voters. I think uh, in several polls, by large margins, Democrats consider Joe Biden the one they trust the most on foreign policy. Uh, And Pete Buttigieg has come up, I think, in those polls. He actually leads among State Department employees, among Department of Defense employees for contributions. But it's still Joe Biden by a mile uh, when people are talking about foreign policy in the Democratic Party. That may be a challenge for Joe Biden because he has still not come up with a great explanation for his votes on Iraq. Mm -hmm. And this creates opportunities, I think, equally for Buttigieg, Biden and Bernie Sanders, who really keys into that anti-war element of the party and has made no mistake about where he stands on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like health care, no mistake. Uh, Now, some huge fundraising halls by Bernie Sanders. He blew the competition away by reporting he'd raised $34.5 million in the fourth quarter. He's going to have the biggest war chest. How will that help him? It really is an insane amount of money. (laughs) When you think about the fact that in October when Senator Sanders had his heart attack, people were writing him off and saying, that's it. And now he's come up in the polls, I think, five or ten points since then. Um, this also shows that Elizabeth Warren has, has, in a sense, lost the battle for the left, at least for now. That she tried to take on Bernie Sanders directly on Medicare for All, uh, tried to position herself as a more pragmatic, progressive. And Bernie Sanders, in both polling and fundraising, has just crushed her on that. So where she goes is now an open question as well. But Bernie has locked the left in the Democratic Party so far. Well, we have to leave it there. It's been such an interesting night. Thank you both, Max Burns and Lester Munson, for being here with me on Sound On. I'm June Grosso, and Kevin Cirilli will be back on Monday, so you can listen for that. And um, and I'll be back on the Bloomberg Law Show. Now, coming up... Uh, I just want you to remember that download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find Sound On on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thanks so much for listening tonight. Have a great weekend. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg 99.1.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.